Faye, I don't know about you, but out here in Washington, we're starting to see COVID on the rise yet again. Same here. We're getting a lot more COVID patients back on the wards over here, Nick. I don't know about you, but it took me a long time to really like find and get back into what exactly I needed to do with a COVID patient after not seeing patients for so long with it. Yeah. And the good thing is, you know, a lot of these resources are on the OBG Project's website and you can go in and go and find all the information that you need about COVID-19 outside of pregnancy and in pregnancy. Yeah, they've got a button on their website that has topics ranging from FAQs for gynecologic care, treatment guidelines for COVID-19 if you've been reassigned outside and been placed into an ICU, as well as key research um, that's coming out, new stuff every single day. Exactly. And the best way to get all of this information is if you subscribe to OBG First, which is their subscription service, you can get all of this information plus more and also create your own library of all the resources that you want from their website. If you're a chief resident, you can get OBG First absolutely free. Head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar, see how you can get OBG First and all these nice COVID-19 updates for absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Coffee. Today we have with us two very, very special guests, um, one of whom you've heard on the podcast before is Dr. Jeffrey Sperling, who's an MFM physician at Kaiser Modesto in California. Welcome back, Jeff. Hi, hi. And then secondly, we have with us someone we've spoken about before, but new to the podcast, uh, Dr. Josh Dalkey, um, who's an attending physician at Methodist Women's Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome, Josh. Hey, thank you very much. So the reason we have the two of you on the podcast today is we wanted to talk to you guys about the article that was published in November in the Green Journal, The Case for Standardizing Caesarean Delivery Techniques, Seeing the Forest for the Trees. So first of all, um, congratulations on the article, and thank you very much for publishing this article for all your trainees like myself. <laughs> Well, thank thank you for having uh, us on your wonderful podcast. I have to say that my my daughter, who's in college, said that I finally made it because I'm on your podcast. So regardless <laughs> of previous uh, publications, this is this is the high point for me. So thank you. Well, no, we're thrilled to get to it with you guys because we have a good amount to discuss today. Let's talk first, though, about why the update. So. You know, at least Faye and I now have been in residency training for five years and did our first C-sections as interns. So it was not too long after you guys published the first paper on sort of the evidence-based cesarean in 2013. What was the need or what were the reasons for the update this year? Well, I would say that um, that was actually a um, update of uh, the original paper by uh, Dr. Simi Chohan, uh, Jason Baxter, and Vincenzo Bergella from 2005. So when I was a young fellow at Brown uh, in 2011 to 2014 was when um, I humbly asked those icons to, to update their paper, and they were kind enough to say yes. So. Um, they, they get a lot of the credit for the original idea, at least. Um, and it was, a, it was, so it was seven years from 2005 to 2012 when we did that update. And um, it was getting to be that time frame again here in 2019. So that's when the, the idea to 
to redo the update um, kind of originated. That's awesome. I mean, you know, I'm sure just like us in residency, we have all seen probably dozens of techniques for the C-section. Um, can you talk a little bit more about why we think that standardizing the C-section is important? Well, Jeff, feel free to jump in at any point here, okay, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I when I was a resident at uh, Brown, I remember uh, Dr. Dalkey sitting at the foot of the table with a yank out in his hand, swiping back and forth, and asking at every single step, "Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that?" And I think time is money in the operating room. Um, that's one part. We know that uh, it's the most common surgery in the United States. We need to be safe and efficient and effective. And it's torture as a surgical trainee to have different attendings give you a different answer every single time. And so I think that one of the most important things about standardizing it is for our trainees, not the least of which um, I, you know, I think it makes it easier to learn and to practice and then to develop future techniques and, you know, to become a better physician in the future. So I think uh, it, there's three main agendas in the paper that uh, Dr. Dawkey wrote. One was about improving safety and efficiency and effectiveness. The other one was about improving surgical trainee training for trainees like you and me and anybody else who continues to try to improve. And then to have this be uh, a measurement that can be used in the future for evaluating proficiency. And then I guess the last one, which is probably the most important, is that we have all these new trials that are coming out and we don't actually know what the impact of any one intervention that's changed in one of these trials is on the, um, on the actual outcomes of interest. And so standardizing the technique allows us to get rid of unmeasured bias and confounding. What, what really kind of surprised me in the last seven years was just the vast number of randomized trials that have been performed. I, I mean, this is, an interest of mine. So I try to keep track of at least mentally or, or kind of a running tally of the randomized trials. And, and when I sat down to actually do the, um, the PubMed search, it was kind of shocking that over 200 have been done in the last seven years. So even for someone who, who wants to keep on top of the, the latest um, research and data, uh, it's, it's a very, very difficult task to, to just get to those papers, let alone synthesize them and determine which ones are, are optimal for changing practice, et cetera. So, so that was part of it too, is just um, just the difficulty of, of staying up to date on all of these trials. So we kind of um, put our heads together and thought, is there, is there a different way to approach this data and information that, that might, um, might actually prompt some evidence-based changes in, in how we operate? Yeah, and you guys mentioned in the paper too, standardization of surgical technique, though, I think to many of the residents out there listening and thinking, oh my God, like that would be an undertaking. It's actually been done before in other surgical specialties. Is that correct? Yeah, for sure. The The most famous case that, that's mentioned, that we mentioned in the paper was, uh, was highlighted in Atul Gawande's uh, book, Complications. And there's a uh, hernia hospital in, in Canada that... Um, has demonstrated um, over over many years uh, improved outcomes in I think it was resurgery if I'm not mistaken was their primary outcome but but for sure they um, they've demonstrated uh, improvements in in standardizing surgical technique and we do that this in the outpatient setting all the time with with checklists and algorithms and um, especially with a high volume 
surgery like cesareans, um, it follows that you would get similar improvements. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to say that since we are an education podcast for residents, I was going to get a little bit more into the nitty gritty of the paper. Is that okay? Sure. So I was going to actually kind of go through like each step of the C-section that you guys had um, included, not every single step, but at least just like, you know, you know, getting in uterine incision, all of those things. So just kind of starting off, like what type of entry should we be doing for a C-section? And, you know, what, what is the evidence behind that? So uh, for the skin subcutaneous entry and perineum, we recommend a transverse skin incision two to three centimeters above the pubic symphysis with sharp subcutaneous and fascial dissection and blunt subcutaneous and fascial expansion with the omission of a superior and inferior fascial dissection, as well as a blunt peritoneal entry. And this is based on a... Uh, um, Cochrane review from 2013, where different abdominal surgical incisions have been evaluated. And this is um, based on reasonably good quality data that you should avoid um, sharp dissection, both for pain scores, blood loss, and uh, speed. All right. I'm going to ask about one people are really attached to or not attached to, depending on who you ask, the bladder flap. Yes, no. No, no to the bladder flap based on very good evidence. And this has um, been confirmed by um, more recent uh, systematic reviews and randomized trials, um, really high quality, high numbers uh, out of Washington University. So um, if there's one thing that we can, I think, put to rest as far as uh, omitting or doing, uh, the bladder flap is something that we should uh, clearly omit based on best evidence. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I forgot to kind of um, preface all of this, which is that, of course, there's going to be some variation in technique depending on scar tissue and like different number of C-section and things like that. But we're kind of just talking about your standard C-section that you do every day, like potentially your primary C-section, correct? That's correct. And, and I think that that's an important um, point as well. Um, you should always approach uh, your surgery with with um, clear eyes and um, make modifications as needed. And we would certainly advocate for that over blindly doing um, a standardized approach without thinking. That's not what we're trying to imply. I saw, thought it was interesting in your paper, you guys talk a little bit about wiping the, the endometrium or the inner portion of the uterus. Um, and actually something that is like done routinely and even like people joke about like you have the intern swipe the chief swipe and then the attending swipe after that to like clear out all the crud um but you guys say only do it when the placental membranes are seen which is struck me as interesting why is that no i was gonna say there's a there's no benefit uh to routine performance in in terms of postpartum hemorrhage endometritis hospital readmission time to return to bowel function, QBL. And this has actually been studied in a randomized control trial. I mean, use your clinical discretion, but the four, the four peat swiping uh, probably is not that good. And when we think about our rising rates of placenta accreta, the less that you probably do that's needed, probably the better. Yeah, this is definitely going to change my practice because I'm one of those like hyper wipers <laughs> inside the placenta inside when I when the placenta comes out. So definitely, we'll need to change that a little bit. Um, this is part of the this is part of the culture change too, right? Because I mean, this goes even to your your scrub techs who are just just have that wet and dry just waiting for you as soon as that placenta comes out. And so, right. 
it's it's not just um, it's not just the surgeon or the trainee. Um, it's kind of a the idea that that we kind of have to change the the culture and the kind of the routine or the dance of of surgery in this case. And and I think this is probably one that may benefit from for more studies actually um, if there is in fact a, a difference. Um, but the as Jeff said, the the data that is available to us does not demonstrate any benefit. Um, the other one that I think is kind of contentious is the closing the uterus, like one or two layers. Um, and I feel like, you know, towards the end of residency, I was very much leaning towards one layer. And then I came to fellowship and I was like one layer, one layer, and then been repeatedly like given the side eye by some of the residents. <laughs> yeah, this is probably, I would say the most controversial um, step if you, and, and it's been studied a ton. And I, I will tell you, I was a, a two layer person I've gone back and forth and only recently come, gone back to one actually after writing this paper. And, and mostly it was because of our uh, common mentor, uh, Dr. Rouse, who, who's also on this paper and, and discussions with him. Um, there, there's just no demonstrated benefit of two-layer closure when you look at outcomes that we really care about, which is primarily uterine rupture rates. And, and this is based on the Coronas trial that's multi-centered, randomized, uh, thousands of women with long-term data. And I don't know if this will ever be repeated as far as, um, as far as data goes, but there's just no demonstrated benefit of two layers. You guys have another area in the paper where I think our anesthesia colleagues might beg to differ a bit about um, uterine exteriorization versus leaving in situ for the repair. Kind of the favor, I think, is towards the surgeon's perspective here of exteriorization. Um, but any commentary on that in particular? This is a tough one because I think uh, it's one of those ones where you could have gone either way in terms of making a recommendation. Um, there's probably benefit in both keeping it in and taking it out and perhaps surgeon's preference is, is the best, but there's a study that showed that there's actually a reduced blood loss with uh, exteriorization. Um, and in situ repair has shown improved nausea, vomiting, and resumption of bowel motility. There's no short or long-term difference from the Coronis trial that Dr. Dockey had previously outlined. But I think given the likely reduction in blood loss and the ability to medically mitigate patient symptoms and improve the inspection of the ovaries and tubes, we felt that it was the best approach was to actually take the uterus out. Um, but I think it's, you know, there's certainly some discretion in how you approach this. What are your guys' experiences with this step? Because I think it's it's one of the ones that are is more controversial. I feel like where we trained um, at Brown, I feel like most people, except for like a notable one or two people, always exteriorize the uterus. And so I was taught kind of to exteriorize the uterus. And at least I feel like for me, I can see better when the uterus is exteriorized. And so I feel like I go faster. I will have to say that I do notice, and this is definitely just based on personal experience, every time that I put the uterus back is when the mom starts to have like the vomiting fit. And then it's really hard to complete the rest of the surgery because, you know, the increase of intra-abdominal pressure. I don't know what you've noticed, Nick. Yeah, you know, it's sort of changed because you're right. I mean, we all have sort of the common experience of the exteriorization, well, at least while you and I, Faye, were in residency. But since moving, you know, there's a real tendency where I'm at now in Washington to leave the uterus in situ, um, primarily for those nausea vomiting um, concerns. Uh, we have a number of patients, too, where there are like no 
the patients have like significant cardiac disease or something like that. And the anesthesiologists really try to limit the amount of Valsalva and such that's happening even intraoperatively. Um, so again, talking about using your head outside of the usual circumstance. But I think even if I were just to let myself decide, I'd still pick exteriorization most times. Do you guys, when you do it inside, you do use the retractors at all or uh, anything like that? I know that does make uh, keeping the uterus inside easier. Yeah, um, selectively, I'd say. Um, there are some times where we'll break out the retractors, but most of the time not. Kind of moving from there as another nitty gritty, I guess we're going to talk now we're moving through closure and say, you know, there's those other layers that are present there. There's the peritoneum, there's the rectus, everything before you get to the fascia um, that we kind of had to push through on our way there. Is there any reason to close any of that up? No reason whatsoever. Please don't do it. Please don't do it. Please. <laughs> Let's get That's out all we here. needed to hear. I, I will have to fully confess that, you know, do, doing some of these closures and residencies like drove me crazy. And so completely just for my own selfishness, I preferred not to close them. But it's good to know that there is evidence behind not closing those layers. <laughs> and I think the, the peritoneal closure is kind of interesting because there's no clear benefit. And that's that was studied in Cronus and there's a Cochrane review. But I think the rectus one's particularly dangerous because there is actually increased postoperative pain in uh, analgesic requirements when you do that. So um, in the context of an opioid epidemic, I think that's got to be something that we shouldn't be doing unless there's clear evidence of benefit. One thing that was actually very interesting that kind of came and went, I felt like, during our residency, Nick, was the glove change. Um, so what happened yeah. was we would there was a recommendation that everybody, after you've closed the uterus, put it back inside, you're about to close fascia, everyone would change their top glove. It kind of became a thing where we had to do it for maybe about a year, and then it kind of just got phased out again. So what's the evidence behind that glove change? Uh, it, it comes from a good place. There is some uh, GI surgical literature about uh, clean contaminated wounds from colon resections and some literature from GYN oncology. And there's been uh, four main uh, RCTs that have evaluated routine glove change. One of them showed a decrease in uh, composite wound complication. And the three prior trials found no benefit, and including the largest of those which uh, numbered 760. In most of the trials, they actually redrape the 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 whole field, they change their gowns. And it's hard to think that just changing your gloves actually makes a difference when you're covered in meconium and um, GU flora to think that that intervention alone really makes a big difference on the ultimate outcome. So I think uh, given the largest of these trials did not show any benefit, um, less is more. All right. And we get to our final layer, kind of sub-Q. I think it's well established at this point, the two centimeter or greater sub-Q layer is recommended. But we've talked time is money this whole time of like kind of moving the like faster way and all of this. And yet when we get to these last layers, we recommend closing that subcutaneous layer with two centimeters or more depth and then closing the skin with staples or with and closing the skin with suture rather. <laughs> don't just got to edit that out so it was a slip of the tongue i guess because why would you recommend the uh why would we recommend the suture over the staples if the staples are going to be that much faster so you're right time time is money but um reduction in, in infectious morbidity is is money as well and so i think even in the setting of women with obesity um subcutaneous um 
closure with suture uh, has clear benefit for reduction of infectious morbidity. So um, yes, the uh, staples are faster, um, but the skin closure with suture is preferred due to uh, an outcome improvement. Well, thank you for reviewing kind of the steps of the C-section with us and the evidence behind each of those steps. I guess the next question that I, that, you know, you may not have an answer to is how do you think we could implement something like this? Where do we start by getting people around the country to all start doing C-sections the same way? Because I can envision um, some people saying, well, you know, I really like my way of doing a C-section and I don't want to change. And I feel like I wouldn't be able to be as quick or I wouldn't be able to be as thorough, whatever it may be, if I were to change up my technique now. I will say two things and then and let Jeff maybe finish it. But the, the first thing is, is um, we, the four of us have talked and we've all admitted that we've changed technique um, over uh, the last, you know, three to five years of our, of our uh, experiences. And so it's not hard to change. Um, I think that, that we oftentimes hold on to our biases and what is comfortable for us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's that much harder to, to change. Um, so I would encourage I would encourage that. The other thing um, is that I don't think that this is going to be um, change that's driven by people with gray in their beard and no ha uh, hair on their head. This is going to be driven by um, a desire for trainees to push this idea. And so one thing I would encourage is every uh, medical student or resident who's listening to this to go to the Green Journal and download the open access article and take that, um, take that figure that is uh, in the paper and bring it to their surgery and ask their attending, um, can we try it this way? Because I think this is really going to be something that's driven by uh, trainees and residents if, if it's going to change at all. Uh, that's not to excuse uh, the, the, the gray-haired people uh, in the back, but because uh, we should be willing to, to follow best practices as well. Yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, it's the time-honored question of how does new information get taken up um, by clinicians? And the answer is very, very, very slowly. And this is uh, one of those, for some reason, for the most common major surgery that happens in obstetrics and probably one of the most common in the world, um, many of these trials, when they, the, despite coming out with high-quality data, are very slow to be incorporated. So what is really nice about this is it's a palatable to high quality surgery and it forms the framework of best practices. So I, I think it's hard because academic institutions are but a small portion of the clinical care in the United States. So my hope is that institutions also outside of academic medical centers also decide what they believe is best practice cesarean delivery, much like we have ERAS pathways for preoperative and postoperative care, it'd be nice to have ERAS pathways for best surgical care. And one other thing too, that uh, there is an included appendix that's not in the, the main text of the paper that goes through the institutional um, steps that can be standardized. And that includes things like preoperative antibiotics and the, the other steps that we didn't talk about um, up to this point. And so um, you, we can kind of divide this as, is the, is it, is the institution willing to, um, standardize those practices and, and the rest is left up to the surgeon at the time of surgery. Nick, those were all of my questions. Um, I don't know if you had any more or if Jeff or Josh, if you guys had any other parting words that you wanted to leave us with. 
I, my my parting words are not related to this at all. Uh, one is I was just going to say to the residents of the of the world, I highly recommend that when you have a mentor like somebody like Josh Dalkey, that you don't uh, you attach yourself to their hip because um, and follow them through your career because that's probably the most important takeaway that I would have from this is like find a good mentor and you got good people, don't let them go. Uh, Jeffrey, that's going to make it onto the podcast. But Josh, I want <laughs> you to know that. That's sweet. Uh, it, it's a beautiful thing, really, and um, I and I could say the same thing about the the mentors that have gotten me along the way as well. Uh, the previously mentioned Dwight Rouse, Neet Johan, Vince Bergella, all of those people are are huge in in creating and developing this idea. So uh, just I keep paying it forward, I guess. Right? Let's see. I would. I think the um, I think the uterine closure part is is still the the most fascinating because there has it's been studied so much and yet it's still so controversial it's really easy to kind of close the close the door on the on the bladder flap and and i would even say like some of the irrigation steps and the you know blunt entry and things like that but the um the uterine closure is one that that's still um i think controversial for good reason because um, at least from a plausibility standpoint, I think there's you could make an argument for two-layer based on ultrasound findings, postpartum, and, and good randomized trials that way. But at the end of the day, the best evidence would suggest that the long-term outcome that we care about, like we said, the uterine rupture is not not any different. Yeah, and I think the wiping, I'm a wiper. I'm a double triple. What'd you call it? What was the term? The... Oh, a hyper, a hyper wiper. Hyper -wiper. I, I was a hyper wiper. What's interesting is in, in clinical practice outside of academic institutions, how many of these steps were highlighted in, in Josh's previous paper are still done, you know, like uh, uterine extension with sharp instruments, uh, lateral uh, traction that you wouldn't necessarily think are still used. So even if we can get the high quality steps implemented, I think we would be on the path towards um, reduced surgical morbidity. For all the residents out there who are looking for research studies, I think that there's um, a lot of quality studies that, that could be done by trying to implement this in your institution or looking at different time intervals for year training, et cetera. So I think that there's a, a, a ripe opportunity to to continue the inquiry in, in that way too. And that might give people an excuse to do it in a standardized way if, it, if it's under the guise of a research study. Or fellow projects. <laughs> fellow projects. <laughs> Keep it going. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you two so much for coming onto the podcast and chatting with us this afternoon. This was really valuable information um, for me, but I'm sure also for our resident listeners, our medical students as well. Yeah, not to mention really fun too. That was awesome. Yeah. Ah, all all right, right. Cool. All right, so once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, I know we did, but if you did too, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at Creogs Over Coffee One, on Facebook and Instagram at Creogs Over Coffee. Um, and if you want to support the show, go ahead and go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Creogs Over Coffee. You can find show notes for this episode and all of our previous episodes on our website, creogsovercoffee.com. Or if you want to send us a question or have more questions about today's episode, give us an email at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com.